Welcome to RPG Reanimators, a podcast for GMs where we dissect horror scenarios and offer our experiences and advice to reanimate them at the table. I'm Lex. I'm Nathan. I'm Alex. I'm Holly. Today, we're examining a game system, Aberration, called Ten Candles. We'll discuss the system itself, what makes it special, and give our best advice on how to try running it at your table. Now, let's examine this aberration. So, Alex, can you tell us what this system really is? Yes. So, mechanically, it is a dice pool type system with added on uh, mechanics in the form of candles being the game timer, as well as a narrative like checkpoint list. It was written by Stephen Dewey of Cavalry Games, and he also is known for writing other tabletop RPG systems. He published a book called To Serve Her Wintry Hunger, in which players get to cut out paper snowflakes as a game mechanic. I had the pleasure of meeting him at PAX East. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So is there a particular premise or a setting to play this system? Right. So the sun has gone out. The world is dark. They the entities have shown up and are now starting to basically hunt everyone else down. Pretty grim. Yeah. Tragic horror is definitely the, the name of the game here. And it tends to be really like personal level, right? Street level characters. We're not expecting superheroes, adventurers, that kind of thing primarily, right? Right. It uses the current world as a setting. And it lays on some apocalypse themes. Yeah, reading through the setting descriptions in the book, it it felt like something that would make Cormac McCarthy blush. That the <laughs> skies have all grayed out, crops have died, satellites have gone dark, all the power grids and things have faded. Basically, it's you're playing in the road with a little bit of, um, oh, what was the movie with the sound? Um, a Quiet Place? A Quiet Place. <laughs> I don't know. At least that was the gist I was getting when reading through it. Yeah, I believe the the like the byline is 10 days ago the sun went out. 5 days ago they came. And so that's like that's your basic like one two premise. Which is kind of interesting that it doesn't start immediately as the action is happening. Usually we tell people kind of, you know, drop right in during an action in media res, but this has given it a little bit of time for characters to be familiar. And so maybe when these creatures show up, they're not as surprised. That's, that's an interesting choice. And so is there any specific location or time frame or setting? You know, we tend to talk about Call of Cthulhu tends to take place around the 1920s to 30s and then something in modern era. Is there anything like that in 10 Candles? Yeah, so the default setting that the game introduces with its session modules is default this is modern day and the world's ended but i've also in the session modules are settings where it's in space on a space station or you're just playing as dogs yeah so it can it can get pretty oh that flexible. that makes me sad that makes my heart tremble a yeah. little bit can't do that <laughs> yeah, that one's, that one's yeah. a sad one but yeah, I saw another one of the prompts in the book that was in the 1700s. It really sounds like mm -hmm. it's the world can end at any time that you want. 
based on what you think sounds like a compelling startup for it. Absolutely. And some of them don't even require the end of the world, just uh, a drastic shift. I think they have one of them that's uh, people fleeing Miramar. And it's not like at the end of that, the world ends, but your characters will not survive. So you're still playing out the rough story beats. Right. The end of their world, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you tell me how it's played? We've talked a lot about the tone of it, but what is it going to look like uh, at the table? So it's a, it's a D6 system where the number of dice are equal to the number of candles that are lit. So you have a dwindling pool of dice that are available to the players. Um, the candles are put out one by one as players fail rolls. So you're a successful roll is a six on any one of the dice. If you don't achieve that, you have failed a roll, you darken a candle. Um, also, a hard mechanic to the game is as you're rolling, even if you are successful, any ones that you roll are moved out of the dice pool temporarily, and everyone subsequently in that round will roll with fewer and fewer dice until a candle's put out. And then you go back to the dice pool as the number of candles being lit. And then, if I understand correctly, the GM gets a dice for every candle that is unlit, right? Yes. Yeah, so we have you have that push-pull of who has narrative control in this moment. So when the player rolls, the GM will roll whatever dice they have, and whoever has more successes gets the narrative control. You know, even if players succeed, if the GM succeeds more, you know, they, they have successfully mm -hmm. completed their action, but the GM narrates what actually happens. Hmm. So usually I, I understand that when you put out a candle that kind of calls an immediate end to the scene and you establish some truths, can we kind of talk about the structure of how established truths work? Oh, please do. So the establishing truths gives the players some agency. Um, the first established truth is the world is dark and you go around the table and everyone says one truth and it can be any truth that the players decide in the moment. Um, whenever I've played with folks who are still kind of learning it, you know, it can be something as simple as, you know, how your character is feeling, but it could be introducing a wrench to what's going on. Like, oh, you hear a rustling in the next room a hard rain starts to pour something that, you know, sets up the next scene to be a little bit more interesting. And these truths are irrefutable. Once they have been said by the player, it is the truth. You could just, the only thing you cannot speak to truth is a truth about them. Something that defines who they are. And there's one truth that everyone has to say for the last candle, which is, and we are alive. Yeah. So it almost becomes like a, a chant. Mm -hmm. You know, hearing it from a different room, you just hear people all together to say, and we are alive. Yes, <laughs> it's it's really immersive as mm -hmm. each candle goes out one by one in the dark room that you're playing. And if I understand correctly, it's this chant of these things are true. The world is dark and we are alive gets repeated until the last candle goes out and you end with these things are true. The, the world, world is, is dark. dark. And that is it. Super cheery. 
<laughs> it's it's dark and tragic horror really is a fitting descriptor um something else that is important is before the game really begins once you've created your character but before play starts your players record their final message to the world their goodbye message and then at the very end when all the candles are out you play all of those messages back for them to listen to as everyone sits in silence Actually, backing up a little bit, could you talk more about the how the character creation really happens, including the voice memos, of course? So character creation is really just four index cards where a character is composed of their vice, their virtue, their brink, which is when they're uh, what they've been pushed to do in this apocalypse, and their hope, which is a moment where they will find hope if x is accomplished as the game master permits and tries to tie in with the story and the really fun part about character creation is the fact that i believe you don't get your own virtues or vices you get uh so you write down the vice and you give it to the person to your left and you write down your virtue and you give it to the person to the right so that's when you have to really improvise and figure out what you have to work with the brink is also a very uh, a very cool mechanic where it's a a secret that another player will write about you like i've seen you cannibalize his family to live and then i'll give it to my the player to my left so you would know what they've done um there's an additional part the person who sits next to the gm writes the brink for them so that way whoever they are this entity they can be they can change pretty much every single playthrough so you can say that they i have seen them mimic people's voices or i've seen them fly and that's just fuel that the gm can work with and one of the people who sits next to the gm also gives a brink to another player they have seen you uh, and you can throw in a monkey wrench like they have seen you worship them so you're really seeding drama from the start with these kind of brinks and the vice and virtues are kind of how you define your character mm -hmm. the brink is supposed to represent what your character is capable of in their worst mm -hmm. moment like what when you are broken down to your base instincts what are you truly capable of yeah. And so that's why they don't let you use your brink until you've burned your other cards. Until you've burned your other cards. So yes. why would someone burn their cards in this? You'd burn your cards to get re-rolls. Generally, you don't want to fail because failing will give over narrative control. Or you may have cases where you've rolled a lot of ones and ones get removed from the remainder of the scene. So you can't keep rolling them it diminishes your chances basically so you might want to burn a card but you would get to re-roll all of the dice for that no just the ones so it's a way to mitigate some of your disaster basically interesting keep the fire burning for a little longer right and there are some different uh variations with like brinks and uh, moments of how those work with the dice. Um, they're, they're subtle shades kind of of 
re-roll the dice so that you have more in the pool or more successes available to you. And it is kind of interesting that the idea is you have a vice and you actually physically burn it. And that is no longer a part of your character. It's a really interesting uh, physical reminder that you don't have to role play that anymore, or you should perhaps role play the lack of that vice or virtue as you go. So maybe previously you had your virtue was a caring father and you burned that away. And now you have an opportunity to show how that is no longer true. You know, from a role-playing and improvisational standpoint, that's really interesting that you're starting off with sort of the most equipment to tell you who your character is in the beginning. And then as you potentially sacrifice these parts of yourself, there's less telling each player like what this character is and truly letting the player more embody that, that like you have been this person, you now control much more of like, do they have a new vice? Is that something else? Like, are they losing these parts of themselves? How are they acting? So it frees you up the longer that it goes. Right. And it, it doesn't have to be losing a part of yourself. It's also how that helps that vice or virtue hmm. helps you in this situation. Interesting. Yeah. Do you have more you want to talk about that, Lex? I am still, I'm sorry. So just help me through it. I'm trying to understand the whole dice pool bit. So say in the beginning, there are 10 dice. You're going through a narrative scene. People can roll the whole handful of 10 you count your sixes as successes, and then the ones is, you know, you should really just play this with the alien dice, honestly. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so you take the ones and then you pull them out for just the rest of that scene. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Uh, things happen, then that candle goes out. Do the ones go back into the pool? Yes, they yes. do. Okay, but then you would take so, those out. But then out. you only have nine if you start from ten. Yeah. Right, but the GM would then get one, the one. panic dice, basically. Yeah, the one for the unlit candle, yeah. Gotcha. I mean, I'm just saying, that's GM getting stress dice. It makes sense to me. Anyway, I digress. Um, can you tell me more about the voice memos? So I, I just kind of wanted to clarify the game mechanics before getting into that. Yeah. But it sounds so really unique. Once the characters are created using these four index cards, you basically have an idea of who they are as a whole. So you give them a name, you give them a background, and then you pass around a voice recording device or your phone, and each player basically takes turns uh, saying their final message to the world. And once that's complete, the Game Master takes that, tucks it away for later, and later is when all the candles go out and everyone's dead. And it's uh, it's really harrowing when all the candles go out, you do your last ritual with uh, the truth being the world is dark, and then the GM just hits that voice memo, hits play, and the final messages are played. It's it's honestly surreal. It's really tragic, yeah. People get, like, it's not uncommon for people to get a little teary-eyed, you know, at the end. And it's it's interesting how prophetic some of the final messages end up being in the end. It's it's just a very interesting way to see it play out. Yeah, I'd love to steal that for other games, uh, especially ones that you could actually record like video. You could do something for public access with it. Uh, just really any long campaign would be a lot of fun to see where did your character start? What were they hoping for? 
and by the end uh, we play a lot of horror games to see how far they've fallen yeah i like that it reminds me i'm sure i've seen movies like that where you know the found footage go through all the horrible things then the end credits it's like hey guys we're gonna go to this place Mm -hmm. to show that contrast from where they started so we've talked a lot about player improvisation um can you tell me what it would be like to gm this game in terms of narrating and improvising and like how the scene structure would really play out the GM really has a lot of the improv roles here. One of the things that I think we should talk about towards the GM are the moments that a player defines. Moments are an interesting part of character creation where each person defines a moment like, I find an old toy on the ground or I hug my family again. Uh, maybe they're separated at the start. Something that if they accomplish it, would fill their character with hope for survival. They won't, but that's not important. You're playing the game like you're going to survive. And when you do this, you get a hope die, which is a a helpful thing when you have to roll. It's basically just another die. But it's really helpful for the GM to have this list of things that players want to see happen. So that's a big clue when they're going through a scene, introducing complications, new places, you can kind of return to that well of what do we see here? Oh, well, so-and-so said they wanted to see their family. Let's bring them into this next scene, but maybe in a, a difficult way, right? You find their bodies or something. This gives the player an opportunity to fulfill that, but also look at that and say, well, how is this helpful? You could have them alive, but I think you should be mean. I typically leave it up to the die roll because the moment is basically the test to see if the Mm. player character gets the hope die or not. And the hope die is uh, is a tool for the player character to uh, succeed for the rest of the game because it's a special die that only they get to roll that succeeds on a five and a six. Mm. But they definitely have the chance of not making the moment roll in the first place and fall into despair. (laughs) and um, in addition to the moments just using the session modules the gm also has to work with like locations Mm -hmm. and things that might happen in those locations it's pretty sparse and really up to the gm's improv skills Mm -hmm. i could see this does seem to be very player driven in a lot of ways like uh I know, Holly, you've run this for us before, spoiler alert, and it seemed like you really let us kind of pick and choose places we wanted to go to. Like, the players should be setting out in a direction rather than just reacting. Right. Yeah. So there is a there is a lot of player choice. You basically give your players the, the framework of, here's the premise, here are some locations that might be interesting to your characters, but then they they're driving the truck so they get to decide where they go and the gm and and that case is kind of along for the ride and then so again probably best for experienced gms experienced players because so much of this is just reacting on the fly making narrative choices Mm -hmm. on the fly it can be it can really be a challenge fun challenge but challenge so with all this, um, I know we've been playing a little bit of Wander Home in terms of a non-horror setup. Do you think that this could potentially be run more GM-less? 
in terms of having everyone equally contribute to the the narrative, the setting at hand. I think that's a really interesting way that you could alter the rule set. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to have that push pull who has narrative control. I don't think that's that's very important. Um, so yeah, I think it could be done for sure. And once again, you could kind of run it. I'm still just thinking of alien nonstop now, but it's everyone could roll the their main dice and then roll the stress dice. And then like that's would really dictate the push pool and everyone can sort of contribute to it. Or if someone really feels like they have a solid grasp of a threat, like let them run with it. Yeah. And if someone has a suggestion to build instead of like, ooh, or how about instead it has to be worse somehow, some way. <laughs> The players definitely have a lot of power if they do get narrative control because they can make up anything they want. Like I search the car and I find a revolver with five bullets in it. Or they can say I opened up the trunk and there's a machine gun. Like it's really you got to really trust your players to stick with the tone of the game. 100% agreed. <laughs> How do you set that tone initially? Is that just through the truths? But how do you get them in the mindset that they won't say, I find a machine gun? Or if they do, it's it's justifiable. Right. Read a page from the road. <laughs> no, I, no thanks. I, honestly, the first, time, the first time I played this with people, I, I we just had a conversation about it. And I was like, yeah, you have narrative control. Let's be reasonable. And also, it's more interesting when you are facing trials and tribulations and, you know, you're not armed to the teeth. <laughs> just, mm -hmm. It's more interesting. That's, that's too mature, Holly. I can't do that. Okay. Well, <laughs> like at the end of the day, everyone is going to die. So it's not about the ending. Gunning down everything. It's not right? about the ending. It's about the yep. story. So it's about the journey. Yeah. So, Alex, how would you pulp this up? I'm not going <laughs> to I like it dark. You could run it pulp, but again, at the end, you're all going to die dies, in an action yeah. hero way, right? It's There's a lot of flexibility in the system for that because it's really all about the escalation of the die, which it's a really cool mechanic because your first scene scenes when you have those 10 die, you're more likely to keep succeeding. Mm -hmm. So you have this kind of escalating timeline of, I did a thing. Oh, I failed. Candle goes out. And I don't know those last few candles. Uh, I remember when we played, they flew by and it's a beautiful bit of pacing to keep it where things get worse. They get worse. They get worse. They get like, it escalates. The, has this ever interfered with your play sessions where you need to stop a scene immediately once one goes out so if you're moving into the next one oh uh, never mind and moving into the next one i have that had, can definitely happen i've had moments where basically like candles just go out like three in a row because it's like we've ended a scene they're trying to do something else you failed it that candle goes dark so it, it giving yourself the room to breathe a little bit it doesn't have to be so rigid you know the this the scene is ended in the way that like no one is going to make any more roles contributing to this but we can still kind of draw it out describe what's happening it doesn't have to be this like guillotine cut like all right that's it we're done we're, we're, we're done mm -hmm. talking about this you know see mm -hmm. out the see out the narrative conclusion just don't call for many any more die rolls and 
you know, like let it still make sense, make narrative sense. It's it's a story at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. I've seen some writing about uh, improv, and this is where the eye rolls start. Really? Because I'm talking about it. You're kidding me. I know. Pulling I, I, my leg. I could read a book. Um, but I think it's interesting because one of the terms they use is edits. And an edit is when someone says this scene is done, right? And that might be if you're talking improv shows, someone runs in front of the crowd, uh, does a little sweep, and that's supposed to imply, hey, this scene is done. And the general advice is you edit before you think you need to. And I think that's an important thing that the dice are doing. It keeps a scene from going too long. And sometimes there's this idea like, oh, if I'd stayed a little bit longer, I could have hit this line that I really wanted to. It's all right. You'll get you'll get another chance at that kind of thing. It's more important to keep the flow going than to stall. Hmm. Yeah, pacing. It, it. I I tend to follow the like to call on another kind of indie RPG dread. The rules for dread encourage making pulls, making rolls early and often. And I would recommend that because with 10 candles, it can be easy until you hit that like five candle mark when things just start going downhill super fast. Um, The first, you know, the first five candles going out can take a really long time if you don't <laughs> and, and, and longer, like kind of almost outstaying its welcome a little bit if you if you let it drag on and. So calling for those roles early and often to kind of push the pace of the game along a little bit. So it definitely sounds like for anyone considering running this, plan to budget more time on the front half than the back half. Yes. <laughs> and whenever you're thinking about what you might want to improvise, like know that things might get a little snappier as the the story goes. It's not going to get drawn out. Yes, 100%. And the other thing that I have struggled with consistently running this game on the improvisation side is them. Um, Mm -hmm. It can be a challenge because there is literally no definition of what they are. It's up to the GM and the one player who sits next to them that defines a single trait of what they are. And then you have to kind of, I, I mean, ideally more is revealed as the story plays out and and everything kind of feeds into it and you don't have to do a ton of work as the gm but it's always nice to have something in mind about what this could possibly be (laughs) so yeah you know and i think it was mentioned before the gm's the only one that defines what Mm -hmm. capital t they can do right yeah like you can't use a player can't use candle truths to determine what they do Mm. or what they are Holly, can you talk a little bit about pacing from a player perspective in terms of they have these traits that they could burn, the brinks that they can bring into play? What's that kind of look like in play? It can be difficult as a player. You know, we we all come from RPGs where we want to hold on to our items and like not spend things. Finish the game with 99 mega potions. Finish the game with 99 (laughs) things in your pocket. Yeah. So... You don't want to do that. Um, you have a stack of cards. I don't think we necessarily said that. So these cards are on a stack. And the only card on top of the stack is the one that you're currently embodying. The vice or the virtue or the hope. So you have to get through your whole stack in order to get to that brink at the bottom. That worst trait mm-hmm. that someone has oh. seen you do. So I didn't know that they were in a stack. In a so stack. you can't pick and choose what no. you want to burn. It's so, there. 
Gotcha. The okay. goal is to get through the stack and, and it's very hard to get five people to individually make enough rolls to get through their whole stack from a GM perspective. So going into that as a player, do not be afraid to burn the top card to attempt, even if it's just a single die that was a one, do it because a you're saving dice for future rolls for your other the other people at the table and b you know you're just you're working through your stack it it you know that's the goal the goal ultimately is to get to the bottom of your stack and you know who knows if you're going to get a chance anytime soon again so take take the moments don't don't have the hoarding mentality take the moments when they're there to just burn away your cards you can't make me <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're really robbing like the drama then, right? You could not the whole time. And maybe you would narrate that as you're trying to fight against whatever they are, this impactful thing. And you're saying, I'm I'm never going to lose this virtue. I could see playing that kind of a paladin-y sort of look to it maybe, but there is something very joyful about how fast do you lose it? How bad does it get? So burning a trait doesn't um, remove that from your character. It's still part of you. That's true. Yeah, that's true. But that that's a good way to maybe run things. Well, yeah, but it's also, I think it's relying more on your active memory for when you're going yeah. to bring that up. And it might yeah. be easier to forget even. Mm-hmm. That. <laughs> I kind of see it as you have the your four traits. And as you play the game, you develop your character more just authentically. And mm. you burn away these training wheels that made up your character in the first oh. place. Good way to think about it. You'll never get right. to your hope and try to get the extra die to help yourself if you're not burning away these uh. traits either. Like it's it only helps you to do it. So yeah, it's part of the game. It's part of the game. Don't don't. And you know, I've played with people who are like, oh, but it's only one die. I don't want to waste this like reroll on one die. I'm like, just do it. <laughs> okay <laughs> you might say that this is a game to lose pieces of yourself in yeah. <laughs> what were you gonna say nathan uh, i've completely forgotten you're welcome <laughs> no it's okay so we've talked a lot about the system itself in terms of how to play it and whatnot of course there's lots of guides and things to read online including you know the rule book um but can we talk more about the general strengths and some limitations of the scenario starting of course with the strengths for it like you all seem really enthusiastic about playing it so what what are the high points if you were going to try to sell me on it you already have but like do it again <laughs> yeah so i would say one of the strengths is the player characters are just doomed to die at the end and i'm going to kind of combine it with the limitation because that's also a limitation um if you have this expectation that all of your player characters are going to die, then either the players are going to be like, oh, what's the point? Or they can really take this opportunity to challenge themselves to have this unique role-playing opportunity. Because like, even though the player characters don't know they're going to die and the players do, the players have to play their player characters like they still have hope. Otherwise, like, why, why even bother? Right, like they have to have that much dissonance in mm -hmm. terms of committing to that character. That's correct. And, you know, fun enough, it's it, it's easy to do that, though. Like, it's very freeing to just know that in the end, it doesn't matter. So just, in, you know, just make the most of what you're doing in this moment. And I've had players tell me, like, oh, I I actually found myself hoping for a moment in this game and kind of forgetting that I was going to die eventually. And for such a short 
sort of intro too, people get lost in the characters and I think really develop them fast, which is interesting to see is you don't really have a lot of prompts. You get the vice and virtues from other people defining your character. So it's a little, a little randomized in a cool way. I would say another strength is that the pre-written prompts included in the book mm -hmm. give you a pretty good idea of how the general structure of the game is supposed to go. And it because it is just a list of locations and uh, an intro prompt. So therefore, if that's really uh, simple, then in theory, it's really easy to write a homebrew scenario as well because you just need a list of locations and a premise. Is this something you'd see yourself writing things for, Alex? Yeah, I see myself doing that, and I have. Oh, really? Yeah, we'll get to it in the war story. A little tease. I think that's a strength, though. If you're a GM or a person who is interested in writing for RPGs and you really haven't dipped your toes in it, maybe you're not even ready to fully commit to a scenario, you know, just writing a brief, a setting a couple of locations and then playing it out and see how well, you know, was that a, was that a good setting? Was it interesting, interactive and um, immersive? And they highlight no prep a couple times for the GMs, right? You're not supposed to prepare this long plot or anything. Yeah. It's not in the spirit of the game. Yeah. To do that. I never do. Yeah. Because really everyone's giving a piece of themselves to tell this story. Right. And that's something I think is a, one of the great strengths of this is that it is pretty much purely player driven in terms of what happens, what kind of things they see, what kind of people they are. It's very, uh, it's up to the players. And that's, I mean, we kind of talked about how you don't even necessarily need a GM, but it, it's so freeing. You don't have these rules in there. It's very, very improv. Yeah. Especially with the players being able to just give a fact about the world and that, I think it would really require, of course, any GM to be on their toes that like this random thing could either give you a great idea or, you know, if someone says, I find a revolver in the trunk with five shots in it, you're like, oh, okay, I got something, I got something. And then someone else says, we're locked inside a factory. And then that could immediately hard stop how to reconcile those and how to bring forward into the next scene and whatnot. I think the just the the ultimate strength of this game is the atmosphere is incredible. If you've never played like it, darkening the windows, playing at night, playing in the dark and when all the candles go out and it's just you're in a pitch black room. My god, it's just so atmospheric. And and even just the candles slowly taking illumination out of the room and you can't beat it, especially those audio, like the audio logs all kind of add to it. It's just incredible. I could see you doing stuff if you wanted to do like an old timey version of this. You could even do like a letter home or something like that. Write out a little little letter that you read and then burn at the end. Mm. I like that. Some like the old timey. You said it in the 1700s. Everyone yeah. writes a letter mm -hmm. instead. Dearest Elizabeth. <laughs> Well, what you need to do is you need to buy a phonograph and then you need to get some of those little <laughs> wax cylinders. It, it, it'll be expensive. It'll be worth it. So what about some potential limitations of this system? Have you ever run into sort of any hard blocks? Yeah, so Holly really just talked about how being there in person 
and just soaking in this amazing atmosphere, dripping with style. It it's not possible to the extent of being there in person over for online play. It's not as impactful, in my opinion. Everyone turns their Zoom videos off at the end. <laughs> one by one. Yeah, I think I've heard of people trying it. I, I don't doubt that it can be done to some extent, but you, you kind of do rob it of the atmosphere a little bit. Yeah, I think there's even like some Roll20 modules or stuff that might randomize the candles, but I think part of it is right, that physical aspect of burning the cards, of being around this light that's fading. And these are tea candles, right? They're not very bright to begin with. No, they're tea candles. Yeah. And even even like using real candles. We played it once at a convention and that that's even less fun, you know, when you're dealing with like little <laughs> LED candles. Um, you know, just tearing up your stuff, you know, lighting things on fire is fun. But I think we've said before <laughs> the Venn diagram of RPG players and arsonists is a, you know, is a circle. <laughs> <laughs> Unlucky. So I can just say sort of from my backseat position something that seems to be a limitation to me like the the system itself seems great and it seems very well thought out and whenever you can sit down and do it in person it's rock solid that said it is entirely dependent on the players that you can bring in for that game it seems to me that i would have to be very selective and who i would want to show this to like someone may be super interested in it and you know they love cormac mccarthy but they're not very used to role playing or like they, they have a hard time with improvisation or something. It, it would probably be best for me to actually not choose them. And like that kind of hurts. It also requires you to pick players that would maintain the mood. Like, you know, we teased Alex for how to pulp it up later, but like that also might impact if you have someone that loves to make it's, uh, you know, uh, oh, what's your candle truth? I shat my pants. <laughs> like it's that's just going to kill it. I have had less than ideal experiences in both with playing with novice players who just kind of struggle to keep up with the, the improv and players who just cannot get into the mindset of you will die. You don't need to try to win like that. The, that just yeah. want to yeah, that try to win mentality also sounds like a killer for this. And also just any interruptions. Like, I mean, I have cats that I'm kind of worried about wandering into the candles, <laughs> but I can't imagine if you have kids or something that's, um, and then dad. Like, oh, yeah, hang, we can get into second. that in war stories because I have some stories. <laughs> <laughs> this might be treading into war story territory, but have you had players that really overthink and try and do too much ahead of time? I've had players really spin their wheels. I, mostly players will spin their wheels on the truths because it's like mm. you're putting someone on the spot and it's like you, some for some people you get that deer in the headlights like, oh no, I don't know what to say. And my my go-to is usually like, okay, tell me how your player's feeling because that's the truth. You know, mm. throw a wrench in this situation. Make this a more difficult situation. That's a truth. Tell me about the weather. That can be a truth too. But that, that can be hard. That can definitely- Alex's character limit. is dead. And like, <laughs> there's your truth <laughs> through a wrench in it. I have a war story about that. We'll oh God! That. Okay, we gotta, yeah, we gotta hurry this along because I gotta hear all of this now. Let's say you've already sold me on it. I've got a group that I'm excited to run. We're gonna do it all in person. What would you do to really make this game shine? All right. Well, you're already doing something right by running it in person. 
Oh my god! Finally, I did something you, right. You need to do this game in person. At least, at least try it. Mm-hmm. And uh, some advice I would say, as someone who has ran ten candles before, is to make it interesting. Surprise the players. Don't just as the GM just give them obstacle after obstacle and mm-hmm. bad things happen to them. You got to balance in the good things to give them a little hope. Add in some neutral characters that they can talk to. And uh, if you have this control over pacing, you're, you're going to be fine. Give the players stuff to work with and do to you, add to. Yeah. How do you balance that? Do you change it as you're going through and kind of throw them a bone early, but then hit them hard at the end with maybe like a little? Or do you try and just read the room and see how they're feeling? It's a, it's a, it's definitely like reading the room. You develop a knack for it the more you jam, but I always picture it as a roller coaster. I think something else that might at least be helpful to me when GMing is just to keep a tally mark count of the good and bad things mm-hmm. that I've brought in. And if I start seeing that everything's hedging towards bad, that could be an indicator <laughs> to drop something nice in. Uh, just because sometimes I get a little too caught up in the moment. Something else I might be tempted to do, I know that y'all have talked about using cards, which of course my mind is immediately going to index cards for these things. I feel like if I were to run it, I would be more inclined to use paper, especially very thin paper that could up in flames a lot more to be a little more cinematic about it. That'd be fun. And um, also I'm assuming you wouldn't want to use like a styrofoam bowl. (laughs) I always like it's, it's, it's not particularly cute, but like I just put a cooking pot in the middle, like you know, yeah. one of those sauce pots, saucepans that mm-hmm. have deep sides. I'm like, hey, eh. ooh, it's ten candles, but the candles are fireworks. Oh my god, <laughs> stop it! No, <laughs> you put <laughs> you don't put a firecracker underneath one of the candles, but you don't know which one. <laughs> you get jump scared. <laughs> you get roulette ten candles. <laughs> think in terms of really making this shine from a player perspective there's some tricks you can do to really make it human uh really think about your characters and your fellow players as people in the situation not as you know oh he's the paramedic no 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 that's that's dale and dale's a good guy and maybe figure out how you can care about this other character. It also has the benefit of keeping everyone together because the last thing you want for these games is to have everybody go, all right, well, it's the end of the world. See ya. And uh, split up. Yeah, is have something to care about. Ground it, right? Is you're already normal human people. So kind of to Alex's early example is maybe you do find a machine gun and then someone goes, does anybody know how to use a machine gun? Grounded in <laughs> grounded in the reality of if I were to run across one, I'd go, uh, maybe, and then I'd probably break my arm the first time I tried to shoot it. it, it kind of keep that in mind. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I, I may be a bad person to pl- play 10 Candles with because as soon <laughs> as you said that, my next truth would be, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, yeah, you've got the uh, brown belt at the local dojo. That would be my follow-up truth. (laughs) We're dueling truths here. (laughs) And also for these, just kind of a general thing, because you know you're going to die, is 
be committed to your character, right? Like this mm. is the character you're going to play. You are behaving with them like a real person, but don't be too attached to a specific idea you have for the end of it. And this is just generally like kind of one of those improv rules, right? Is you have a an idea at the start, but if things come in and you need to change, roll with it. It'll be more interesting being able to interact with the other people rather than trying to stick to a, a preset goal. And that's my improv hour. An important discussion to have because everyone at the table has narrative control or the ability to have narrative control is having a, an explicit discussion of the lines and veils up front because there's a group trust that everyone at the table needs to get on board with the fact that there are some things that may that we will not put in this scenario that are you know usually that falls to one person the gm but having that discussion and, and emphasizing that like all of us together are responsible for this narrative so we all need to make sure that we're conscientious about what people are uncomfortable playing is an important question to have right that's a really good point since the players also contribute a lot via yeah. their facts mm -hmm. and things like that okay well i don't think i can wait any longer we are going to move straight into war stories because holly i gotta learn about all <laughs> all of it just <laughs> i'm not the only one with good stories um but i will talk about the um time that we literally had combating truths between two players who ended a scene arguing with each other. We were um, it was a, the moon base was the setting for this one. So they ended the scene arguing with each other. And then one person's truth was um, like, he'd found a gun. One person's truth was his gun has no bullets. And then when it got back to the, the guy that had the gun, he pointed to the other guy and said, his suit has a hole in it. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, so it can get interestingly combative. <laughs> the truths do not have to necessarily help yourself or others. So, um, yeah, that was very interesting. <laughs> uh, Alex, can you tell us a little bit about the scenario you wrote? Yeah, so I wanted to mix it up and use a World War One setting. Because I think... Um, the most recent amnesia game came out and I really took inspiration from that and uh, did a little bit of research against the, the spirit of the game, but just cause I wanted to know world war one and I constructed a scenario which had the, uh, the French soldiers crawling through like trenches and while the world has ended and no one knows what's going on and there's just sheer panic. I really like that. Yeah, it's rife too. And it's just they're still in the middle of no man's land starving and their radios just stop working. Yep. That's and it. The, they the, have no more connection. The tense atmosphere of a war going on and the fact that, you know, people are still people, which means the war is still going on for whatever mm -hmm. reason, but also the world is ending was a really interesting, like double whammy. Nathan, what about you? I've only gotten to play this once, and it was with Holly. We got to play at Necronomicon. I'm looking forward to playing it again coming up, um, and it was a blast. At the end of it, we had a couple people that actually turned out to be working with them, uh, and uh, I think I killed Alex. 
Yeah, I think I, I think I killed Alex. <laughs> there were, there was a, yeah, there's a lot a of long PvP list. in that. Paul Fricker from the Blasphemous Tomes was in that game with us and kind of set the tone early. I think he had the unfortunate. Um, I think he was like the player to my left, so like I got to write a truth about him, and it was basically he was working with them the whole time. Like mm-hmm. it was it was some kind of disease basically that was like spreading through humanity he was a scientist that was responsible for all of it and yeah there was a scene where everyone's like what do we do we've heard that there's a hospital in the next town and like maybe they have the answer so he calls the hospital and like everyone's sitting at the table right so they're hearing both sides of this conversation and the hospital's like oh is the army coming please help us we're overrun and and paul's just like "Uh uh-huh Yep. So, oh, I got you. Gonna you guys are gonna have to help me remember it. How it's did like, it? Uh, it like, yeah, you have food there. Yeah. Great. Oh, you guys safe? have food. Safe? Everything yeah. is safe. <laughs> Wonderful. But and of course, everyone's at the table, so they're hearing both sides of this conversation. It's like, oh my god, it was amazing. <laughs> it was so good. He's so creative. Yeah. So at the end, he like led everyone to his lake house slash laboratory where it had all originated from and that's when it all devolved into pvp and everyone's killing each other and like nathan just embraces what it is oh, it was like blob thingies yeah. from an i don't the know next it, evolutionary step yes yes, yes. <laughs> your your it final was... your my god your final like Voice message mellow, yeah. was so again prophetic it was yeah. so interesting yeah which uh, that was my takeaway is how well that worked is really impressive. And I don't know if it's partly because you like think of it ahead of time and that helps you kind of go that direction or if it's maybe a little, but you kind of forget about it as you're going and then you hear it back and you're like, Oh yeah. Hey, how about that? Yeah, that was an incredible game. And on the flip side with war stories, um, I have played games where like, I, you know, again, embodying that the atmosphere is like 50% of this game. So if you can't deliver on the atmosphere, pick a different time mm-hmm. to do it because I, I tried to play it for people at a New Year's Eve party. So we had like two toddlers watching Frozen in the next room to kind of keep them occupied. So hearing let it go while you're trying to like maintain a tense atmosphere, not great. And then kids coming in and like flipping on the lights, like, what are you doing? What's all the pretty candles, daddy? And I'm like, oh my God, this is a horrible idea. So yeah. Yeah. Every time you turn on the light, we have to turn on a candle, kid. You're killing us. You're killing us. <laughs> but you know what? At the end of the day, by the end of it, I was like, Jesus Christ, can we just end this game? Because it's not going well. Can the sun just go out now? Thanks. <laughs> Tell you what, honey, blow out the candles. I'm fucking done. Okay. <laughs> no. Yeah. Seriously, like in the going back to advice from the GMs, like atmosphere is is everything in this game. If you cannot deliver, mm-hmm. just save it for another time. Because you'll end up disappointing people. I've just got another memorable haunting moment when we played at Necronomicon 2022. And it was with David Gassaway's character. He named his character Victor and he had such a poignant uh, voice memo. Because he's like, you know, even though my parents named me Victor, I felt like everything but. But at least I have this. And then like, our goal for this uh this prompt was to reach the the lighthouse at the end of the resort island and what he ended up doing was he's like yes i made it i made it to the lighthouse 
I'm worth something. And then he just dives onto the rocks to his death. And it was like, holy shit. Yeah. That was, that was awesome. I think that's the closest I've ever come to crying. It was like, oh my God, that's such an ending. What an incredible ending. It was. Well, say someone has listened to this. Assume people listen to this and <laughs> are going to run it. Uh, what advice would you have for them? I would say uh, just die a good death. Have a good ending. Um, and don't forget the journey. The buildup is what makes the ending so uh, powerful. To build on to Alex's die a good death. Uh, I don't think it's explicitly written this way in the rules, but I do like giving my players the freedom to choose and narrate their own deaths. Once the last candle is burned out, uh, you know, everyone is dead. And and the way it kind of is written is your your characters survive until the end. And then they all basically die in that in the, at the very end together. So giving them the the freedom to choose how they die, what their final, you know, what their words are, what ends up happening to them can be super impactful, like in the case with David. And, you know, it gives people a little bit of control over something that's a pretty heavy topic. So I just like doing that. Yeah, that's great. And my main advice is just care about the characters. Really care just about you, about the person sitting next to you. Really embrace that because that's going to make that end part really hit home and much like 10 candles i guess we're ending this recording on a downer <laughs> yep wait you can't say that right after i talk <laughs> we hope our deranged utterings are helpful in bringing this aberration to life at your table you can join the discussion on Discord and subscribe or follow the podcast to hear more gruesome consultations. Be sure to check out the show notes for links from the discussion, where to find us, and other links for things like handouts or other resources. So until next time, thanks for listening to RPG Reanimators. Where your games can die. Or live. On the table. And we are alive. <laughs> the world is dark uh, kill them all let them sort it out. <laughs> yep. <laughs>